Welcome to series two of the Huxley Morton podcast. We kick off this series with several conversations that I had late last year, starting with Craig Lipsit. So let's get on with the show and hear from the man himself. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Huxley Morton podcast. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. It is Friday the 18th of December. We are heading very much into the, the holidays. Um, you just told me off air that you've um, just come from a, a Christmas party. Um, how has life been treating you since you and I last spoke? I did tell you I just came from a Christmas party, James, and now you're going to wonder if I'm slurring my speech from too much eggnog. So let's see how the rest of this conversation goes, and then we'll let your uh, your viewers and listeners decide. Exactly. Yes, I'll be keeping a close eye on you just to make sure you've, you've still got your eyes um, open as well as we get into it as well. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. I know we're wrapping up the year for you and for all of your uh, for all of your followers, but it's a pleasure to be here with everybody. Great stuff. Well, look, Craig, um, to kick us off, um, as I said, when I, when I got a recommendation to reach out to yourself uh, from one of your former colleagues at Pfizer, um, my initial thing was, okay, yeah, I've, I've heard the name. I, I know Craig, he's the, you know, the forefront of, of innovation in, in the world of, of pharma. I regularly see you on, on LinkedIn. Um, but give us a quick introduction and overview of all of the things that you're you currently uh, do now because I just don't think that I would do it any justice if I were to attempt to um, yeah introduce all of the roles that you're, you now seem to be uh, doing and that the many hats that you're wearing. You know James when, when I left Pfizer one of the things I loved the most about my my work was I got to touch so many different challenges around medicine development and so when I was laying out what I wanted to work <coughs> on next I I didn't want to give up on that range of of spaces that I enjoyed. And so uh, I've been fortunate over the last two years to be able to split my time in a few areas, but they're all still addressing the same, the same problem, the same sure. challenge of medicine development, of clinical trials, the process of clinical research, and how we can make that better, whether engaging with patients in better and smarter ways or, or using digital tools. And so today I split my time as an advisor uh, I work as an advisor both for pharma and biotech companies, where I spend about 20% of my time helping them on their enterprise strategies for clinical research. Mm-hmm. I spend about 30% of my time with investors in this category, looking at deal flow and diligence. And I spend about half of my time working directly as an advisor with technology companies, entrepreneurs, and others that are looking to build new capabilities and bring them to market. I also teach and I'm on the faculty at a few universities in this area. And most recently, I've been fortunate to work with a colleague to launch a new nonprofit initiative focused on decentralized research and bringing that to meaningful scale and adoption. Wow. So as I say, juggling quite a few um, things and there's a lot of up in the air for, for yourself in terms of the amount of things that you must be managing now. It's a great mix, and I get uh, I get to work with wonderful people along the way, James. And it's probably the most fortunate aspect of my uh, of my world today. There are great challenges to work on, um, and it, I feel fortunate to be able to see so many of them. But I feel particularly fortunate to work with wonderful people in this ecosystem who are sincerely interested in making change for good. Great to hear it. Well, look, I guess that gives us a, a very quick overview of, of what you're now doing, and there's a lot of it. Um, but how did an individual like yourself first get into 
the world of, of pharma, you know, I've, I've openly discussed that falling into recruitment is not something that I expected uh, when I was, you know, in, in, in my teenage years, as it, as it may be. Um, how did the, the path go for yourself? Was it something you were expecting to go into, hoping to go into? How did, how did you first kick off uh, your career? I knew I was going to land in early days somewhere in sort of the medicine and health space. I had mm. started on certain pathways uh, in medical school myself, but I always enjoyed this aspect of public health and being able to work on on opportunities that address populations rather than just caring for individuals at a time. And mm. so along the way, I had picked up a a master's in public health and epidemiology at Columbia. And that really exposed me to so many other opportunities around public health. Yeah. I actually look at a lot of our work in clinical research as public health. We're looking at not just individuals, but at populations. We're looking at data that we're trying to extrapolate across populations and understanding the efficacy and safety of different interventions that may have a positive or uh, a deleterious effect on mm. those different populations. And so that's really the bend that I've taken throughout my career. After, um, after my work at Columbia, I worked for uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs working on a, on a stroke program. Um, and so that type of experience um, just sort of, sort of brought me closer and closer into clinical research for different medicines at the time. There yeah. were a number of new pharmaceutical um, programs that uh, different companies were launching with neuroprotectants and others to try to mm -hmm. address patients with stroke. Just brought me closer and closer in the world of clinical trials. But along that journey, uh, I started to get enamored with technology. Um, and this was about 25 years back. Uh, I was always kind of a tech nerd and, and mm -hmm. I personally enjoyed being an early adopter with different technologies. And in this case, it was around the ability to measure endpoints and stroke studies using new types of imaging technologies. Right. And so I wound up um, helping to launch an imaging core lab business uh, that was a part of Parkcell, a large CRO. Uh -huh. And uh, I, was, I was the project manager sitting alongside of uh, three or four <laughs> others as brought that business to life. Um, it was all about new ways to measure using technology. And that just became an area that got me excited and where I stayed focused in a lot of ways, even though I'm not so much an imaging guy right now, as we think about digital measurements, digital endpoints, and so many other opportunities, I really haven't drifted uh, too far from that space. I was um, say. But it was really that that first jumped into Park Cell in the world of CROs that gave me my first taste of industry. Mm -hmm. Okay, nice. Well, look, um, I guess, yeah, your adoption of uh, technology back then certainly has, as you say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And um, yeah, now you're kind of at the forefront of that and giving advisory services to others um, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, so following Parexcel, because that I think that goes, goes quite a way back now, doesn't it, um, to your time there. You then spent a lot of time with, uh, the, uh, I guess, the, the stars of the moment, which is uh, Pfizer. You were the is it global head of uh, innovation there for 12, 10, 10, 12 years or something like that, right? Yeah, you know, when I, when I was at Pfizer, I, I came into a group that was focused on 
using new technologies to try to improve clinical trials and drug development. Mm. But I joined the week that torcetropib failed. So I came in on a Monday, and that weekend, the medicine that was supposed to follow on to Lipitor um, was terminated. And that was extremely disruptive and catalyzed like a whole chain of different changes within that company, leading to the acquisition of Wyeth and other other disruptions uh, that, Mm -hmm. that took place. It changed the whole medicine development model and started to shift to a fully outsourced environment. But I had this opportunity to make this case to many of the leaders that I had gotten to know at Pfizer that we can outsource execution, but we can't outsource vision and we can't outsource the future. And I use that as the foundation to create this discipline that was focused on innovation and clinical research and medicine development. Mm -hmm. There really hadn't been a group like that in pharma at the time, but there were many other groups inside of Pfizer and others that focused on innovation in manufacturing or innovation with a lot of our brand teams around digital and marketing. And so I took a lot of that playbook to bring that same discipline to the clinical research and drug development space um, and had the opportunity to to stay at Pfizer for about 12 years, which was a fabulous experience. Amazing. Um, okay, so then moving on from, from Pfizer, you've now got, as I said earlier, you, you wear a whole host of, of hats. You're involved with so many different things, but um, primarily you are out there on your own. You've entered into the world of entrepreneurship, um, as it may be, which is always an interesting story for anyone that takes that leap of faith, as it, as it may be. Um, I believe that you did this mid last year if i'm correct um that's right i left pfizer it was around april of last year and to be honest i wasn't exactly sure what i was going to be working on next which always feels a little scary for folks and it should i mean Mm. there's there's a certain comfort when we're uh, when we're in a large corporation and i've been there for 12 years i could see just how comfortable it could be. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but it's familiar and familiarity is is comforting to all of us. Mm. Um, but as somebody that came into the company to be more of a change agent and focus on disruption and innovation, it felt paradoxical to be in that role for an extensive period of time and to feel comfortable. I felt like I would start to become the, the, the same person that I was trying to change. And so it, it was a catalyst to me that it was time for, for a change. I think the other catalyst to me to, to make that change was the areas that I had carved out at Pfizer mm. were novel and innovative when I carved them out. Quite honestly, <clears throat> nobody cared to work on things like digital and trials or patient experience or collaborations with health systems 10 or 12 years ago. Mm. But a medicine development today and a large pharmaceutical company needs to have these areas as core. They need to be owned by business owners. It's how we run development today. And so my role inside of the company would inevitably become one of an internal strategist. Mm. And I knew inside of a large company, it's hard to influence the strategy of other business leaders. Sometimes people listen more attentively to experts from outside of the company than they might from within. And so it seemed the right time for me to, uh, if I was going to be a strategist and support others in that way, to do it from outside and be able to work with uh, with others. And so it's been a 
it, it's been a fabulous journey. And, and for me, the way that journey played out was largely through network. Um, and I know people say that and they say that all the time. You have to network, you have to hustle. But mm. I was always very, um, very engaged on platforms like LinkedIn. And so when I talk about networks, I'm pointing specifically to the use of social media. And when I would meet people, I would make them a part of my LinkedIn network. Yeah. And so when I left Pfizer, I had a LinkedIn network of 15 or 16,000 wow. professionals in the life sciences, um, which made it um, actually really fortunate so that when I left and I changed my status on LinkedIn, um, and now mind you, if I change my status on, on Facebook that I'm not married and I'm single, nobody's going to call. But when I changed cool. my status on LinkedIn, that <laughs> I was no longer in Pfizer, it, it, was, uh, it just created some great opportunities to start mm -hmm. to work very quickly with different people. And so, look, I know everybody will say network and connect, but LinkedIn, I do believe, is just such an amazing resource to be able to take advantage of and to, to build your own community of peers. Massively. And I think certainly this year, more than, than ever, LinkedIn has just exploded, right? You know, even as a recruiter, I think I've perhaps neglected LinkedIn previously because I did so much networking outside of um, LinkedIn. And, and my aspect would always um, be just finding out who's in people's project team. So, you know, I, I'd speak to sort of one guy, the project manager, be like, okay, look, who else is part of your team? Who would you recommend? And kind of built my whole recruitment network just purely off the back of, of recommendations and just keeping a, a track on our own CRM system. But these days, LinkedIn has been amazing for um, networking. I mean, and that's, I, I think, how you and I uh, are talking because, I, I, you know, it came a recommendation from, from one of your former colleagues, uh, Lena, um, who said it would be great to, to kind of get you on the show. So it just goes to show the power of, yeah, that persistent effort and compound effect that just, you know, just overpowers almost anything when it comes to, to actually building a brand, building business um, and, and so on. Um, so how, you know, that brings us up to, to now, how are things going for you in the modern world as, as it may be, or, or the new world that we're now living in, I paint a picture of, of how things have gone. Because 2019, when you made the jump, nobody was expecting COVID-19. Uh, we've now had to ride that out. How How is your life and how is your business and advisory services all going now? You know, I, I, I feel very fortunate in the year 2020 to work in the industry that we do. Um, there are so many that are being impacted uh, financially, their, their economy, their livelihood, their health are being so adversely impacted. Many that have to go out to work in the outside world, but I can stay right here. And, um, you know, many of us in our industry are able to do this, which is, which is really a, a fabulous, amazing thing. I, I'm also amazed this year at how many of my friends in my network are making career moves mid-pandemic, changing mm. from one company to the other, sometimes from a large pharma to another large pharma, sometimes making other jumps into tech or service areas in this category. Mm. I think it speaks to the confidence that so many people in this space have around professional security right now and being feeling comfortable making a move during a pandemic when we can't go into the office for orientation and to pick up our new laptop. But 
people are making these moves even at this time. And I don't know that people are able to do that in other industries, but clinical research in the life sciences right now is as busy and, and hot as ever. We're getting more attention and, and visibility than ever in terms of oh, yeah. the role and the impact. You know, for me personally, um, a lot of my energy over the last decade had been around decentralized research, decentralized clinical trials. Mm. I had the opportunity to design and run one of the first fully remote trials over a decade ago. And wow. I've been an evangelist on that topic for years. Nice. And so even prior to COVID, it was a hot area for people to engage around and to want to explore their own capabilities or their own investments or what, what they needed to do in their company to bring it in for their mm. studies. Certainly when more came around, things got very busy in terms of organizations that had to make aggressive shifts and the amount of furious activity in the time since has just been remarkable and honestly led to the acceleration of a new nonprofit initiative that we launched last week, the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance, which is something that Amir Kalali and I have been talking about prior to COVID, but certainly this year and now more than ever had a tremendous sense of urgency. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah, for, for, for you, you have been talking about a lot of the advancements that have been taken and acted upon this year. I know that you've been talking about for, for years. I think um, when I got the recommendation to reach out to you, yourself, I you know had a quick look on LinkedIn. I, I checked out some of your videos on, on YouTube and some of the stuff about decentralized trials and digital work. You were talking about back in 2009 or 2010. It was crazy. And I was like, Hold up, I, I almost had to double check the, the dates on these things just because you were just so ahead of, of the, 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 the game on, on those ones. Um, but you're right, the, the life science market at the moment is, is massively hot. As a business, we cover life sciences in, in the States and, and international engineering all around the world. The, the, the engineering guys, it's, it's a real struggle for them because at the moment they can't fly anywhere. There's quarantine issues at both ends. So anyone, you know, wanting to start a, a new job kind of in, in December, it's been completely written off because they'd have to quarantine at home, you know, perhaps here in the UK or in the States uh, for two weeks. And then if they wanted to come home for Christmas, they would fly out to wherever they're going, quarantine there. And then, you know, Christmas would just be completely lost. So it's, it's kind of just the whole month has, has been lost. Whereas in life sciences, people are still moving right up to this week you know we've had people start contract work it's and and there is there's very little fear about you know job security people are, are still moving still hiring uh, and the market is is absolutely booming it's uh it's it's um it has highlighted to me something that you know many of us many of people have known for years that nothing has ever truly evenly distributed and certainly the events of this year in terms of workforce are not evenly distributed. Some areas of work have suffered and struggled. Uh, friends in the travel industry, uh, hospitality industry, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, in some cities, many that work in retail and in food services. Whereas for those of us in clinical research, um, you know, there is a certain level of of demand right now that you know certainly is uh, is is fierce. You know, my. You know, you mentioned earlier around sort of forecasting and, you know, I'm not, uh, I can't see the future, but, you know, my, my work through the years has been very fortunate in having me engaged with 
a lot of different, diverse, very smart people. Mm. And so because Lens has been uh, very focused on clinical research and clinical trials, as I, as I talk to these different people, you know, their, their inputs to me catalyze around and, and focus around what could that mean for clinical research. And so even back in the remote trial days with that first decentralized trial, mm. there were movements happening around participatory medicine. And I was having my own journey as, as a rare disease patient, managing my own health data. And wow. so a lot of those signals to me, you know, put that story together. Um, likewise, you know, you'll find content that I've been sharing for, for recent years around the power of the data-enabled patient and the importance of us advocating for people, for patients to have control over their health data and the ability to share it with trust and confidence and the disruptive force that that's going to create on clinical research. I think there are other catalysts that we can talk about perhaps that may affect the next five years because I could sit here and tell you that the future is decentralized and telemedicine and wearables and sensors, but that's not the future. That's at our doorstep right now and people are, are just working to consume it and implement it and adopt it. So if I sat here and told you that's the future, I'd be selling your audience short. I'd rather, you know, think a couple of years beyond that in terms of what might be the next things that are starting to come and get come together that can create great opportunities for us in our careers, mm. as well as, you know, as investments. And I think you, you mentioned that to me, I guess, when we originally spoke uh, about that, that is not the future, that is kind of, we're, we're there, that will be, you know, in, in the next couple of months, or, you know, it's already happening. Um, but to give us a bit of an insight, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on perhaps what the future does look like for the world of pharma, you know, um, and decentralized trials and, and all of the rest of it that, um, you know, we see so much um, publicized at the moment through LinkedIn and, and other sources. I think uh, over the over the next few years, we'll start to see an increased appreciation around personalization and choice in mm. clinical research. And that will affect both how we're engaging with individuals as participants, but also with physicians as being investigators in our studies. I think as we think about choice and personalization, you know, today there's a lot of interest in hybrid clinical trials, sort of this murky middle ground between brick and mortar sites and decentralized, fully remote trials. Yeah. But when we talk about hybrid trials today, it tends to be protocols defining where people are going to go and when they go to the clinic and when they'll mm. have a home visit. But that's not how you and I uh, interact in the real world, right? If we want, you know, delivery from our grocery store from an app this month, and we want to go to the grocery store next month to pick up groceries, we're deciding based yeah. on where we are in our journey and in our lives. And that's the type of optionality and choice for patients that we're going to start to see. It's going to mean a different set of tools that don't exist today and different ways of thinking about and writing our protocols to accommodate that flexibility, to have resilient ways of measurement and capturing data from patients that honestly don't care about location mm. and giving patients more platforms with routing and choice that can be built in so that they can say, for this visit, let's do it via video versus next visit, I'll come into the clinic. Um, and triggering all the systems downstream. 
I think that same spirit of personalization and choice will start to see working its way into the investigator sites as well. You know, this year, there isn't a physician's practice in the, and I can imagine that has survived mm. without embracing telemedicine and the use of video. And yeah. yet when those same practices become investigator sites, CROs and sponsors drop technology down that's study specific. It's unfamiliar. It doesn't fit their workflow. It requires training and it's redundant. Many of those sites already have compliant video and telemedicine, and it's not unique to just video. We see it with e-consent and tool after tool. In truth, sponsors don't care what the front end is that a site uses for e-consent or that a site uses for a video visit. What they care about is compliance and quality and getting certain data in and out, interoperability. And so as we can start to define those minimum quality standards and define interoperability with these platforms, we can let sites recover their investment, ease their operations, and use tools that are already installed and familiar, only providing when a site needs it. A great yeah. example around e-consent, sponsors and CROs only care about signatures, dates, and versions on a consent. And what the site uses at the front end should fit for them as long as it meets a minimum quality standard. Mm. I think the last forecast that I'll throw out for now would be around thinking about the just how far master protocols can go. And when we think about the learnings in the year of COVID, we had clinical trials running all over the United States that individual investigators at different institutions had launched to study this drug or that for COVID. And in truth, all of them, most of them, proved to be underpowered and unable to really answer a question in a meaningful way. In Europe and in other places, we saw master protocols run by the World Health Organization and others with names like Solidarity that mm -hmm. ran these studies differently. Master protocols that are testing multiple drugs under one study framework, one recruitment approach, one data infrastructure, one network of sites. And in doing so, they were able to scale and get information far more efficiently than all these other incremental studies. Mm. Even think with all the enthusiasm we have in the US right now about mRNA vaccines, and it has been amazing, right? We have now potentially two that are about to be approved. These are two protocols that ran entirely in parallel. Same patient populations, they started within days of each other, they ended within weeks of each other, and yet they both enrolled their own control arms, their own placebo arms, mm. versus if we took a coordinated effort with one master protocol with a three-arm study, two mRNA vaccines, and just a single placebo or control arm, yeah. how much more efficiently could these studies run? And so I think we're going to see much more of this in the time after COVID in terms of collaborative trials. Yeah, I think you're right on, on that. And there does seem to be a, yeah, a big focus on collaboration uh, in general throughout the uh, the world of pharma at the moment and it's for me it's just a, a positive thing um so yeah hopefully more of that continues but yeah you touched upon it, a few of the advancements and innovations that uh, things that we're already doing i guess you know one of them has been certainly the move to, to video um I, I know that you know in the past any of my business meetings i would have had to travel to, to meet with um clients we'd meet with with candidates as much as possible as well uh, and that has all changed in, in pharma everybody loves conferences i mean how many conferences and events do people typically go to um but that has has all changed um 
and it's probably taught us a bit more about ourselves working remotely and working from home. But what what have you perhaps learned about yourself on the remote side of things or, or just in general, uh, Craig? You know, these conferences are, are, have been an amazing transition. And, you know, some of these conference organizations have, have certainly struggled, but as, as have many societies, they're really dependent on their big annual event for the revenue to keep them running throughout the year. And so even in clinical research, without having ACRP's annual meeting in person, SCRS's annual meeting in person, it certainly hurts not just conference producers, but many of the organizations and societies that we depend on. Mm. And while I can see how everybody has tried to pivot to different types of online and virtual platforms, I don't think that any have necessarily found a formula that quite, you know, nails it. I've certainly seen a lot of great efforts out there. Uh, I did a, a, some that have used an online platform that has had kind of a speed networking feature that feels like, I'm going to guess it's right. what speed dating feels like, yep. right? Where you're dropping in randomly with some other meeting attendee for two minutes and having a conversation like this, which quite honestly was a blast just to meet new people in a way like mm. that that had a clock so after two minutes we were both out and could move on but what a great <laughs> way just to connect and meet people because we're hungry for that but what I keep wondering in this conference space is you know we're going to see vaccines now starting to reach uh, people's arms I know the conference producers are back to getting you know wanting to get people in seats and rooms together mm. but we've seen how we can democratize access and get so many more people engaged around a topic online. And so what will hybrid conferences start to look like in the future where I can have a choice in how I participate, where I can well, go in person if I want that immersive, high network, high touch experience, mm. but where if that's not practical for me, I can't afford the travel, I can't afford the time, I can still engage but that doesn't mean it's just sitting at home with a passive streaming experience. Mm. How can I engage in networking just as if I were there and get some of that same experience? Um, so I, I think that it's been such an important year for all of us to, to reach out and connect with others. I think that's what's kept many of these online conferences and webinars so interesting and engaging is we're all hungry for that right now. But it's also hard for people to fit it into their days. Your manager it knows is. your home. You can't really say I'm going on vacation. And so we find uh, in these large organizations and small people are, have unused vacation time because they're just going and going mm. and churning and churning. And so it is so important to find this time right now, not just for learning and education and networking, but just to make sure we're taking that that downtime and hopefully with the holidays here upon us it's a great reminder for us all definitely yeah i mean i hear you 100 percent there i mean this week i've had to almost force one of our guys to just take some time off because he kept messaging me on, on teams he's i mean great that he's you know so into his work and he's you know he's already trying to gear up for january and, and things but i'm like come on you you need to have that that downtime as well uh, but for the video conferences and things I think I agree. I like the idea of a hybrid model or the choice in future. Because for me, as much as Teams and Zoom are great, you still can't beat an actual, you know, get together with, with people. Um, but it has allowed me that sometimes I've attended some conferences because I've had an interest in, in the subject. And I've had it running on my 
desktop whilst also clearing some emails. And it's allowed me to, to do things like that. Whereas typically, would I have justified taking a whole day out of my calendar to, to go to, to the event? Probably not. But it's allowed me to get snippets of information that, that I would not otherwise have had access to. Um, so it's, yeah, it's- um, yeah, Some of the most one. satisfying aspects of these conferences has been like, you know, the conference that, you know, will then take a one hour where there's different breakout rooms in Zoom on different topics and people are no longer passively streaming content like it's Netflix, but then are, are encouraged to turn their cameras and microphones on and, and actually engage with others and in, in, in some sort of, you know, small group breakout, 10, 12 people together mm. or, right? So I think that, you know, it's a great <laughs> opportunity, as you're saying, for being able to consume information, even when we can't take extensive time off, yeah. but also to find some of these opportunities to at least fill some of that networking and engagement void that we're all missing. Definitely. Well, look, um, coming towards the end of the, the, the show now, but look, thoughts on the vaccine, um, Craig, I guess you used to work at Pfizer. They've you know done some great work, you know, some, some fantastic messages from the CEO. Um, I can't get away from it on, on British TV at the, at the moment in terms of seeing people taking the jab and, you know, it's, it's all very positive. Um, but, you know, there will be more vaccines to follow. What are your thoughts on, I guess, how this should be communicated and, and, and how it's going to be accepted by the general population as we move into 2021? It's a great question because a vaccine does not end a pandemic, right? A vaccine being injected into the arm of a participant, of an individual, um, is what contributes to ending a pandemic. And so simply having this as a great scientific breakthrough and a great dis development process is clearly not going to be enough. And we have many around the world who are, uh, are, are very cautious and skeptical around science, around vaccines, around, uh, around the government and, and other stakeholders that we need to trust and rely on if we want to get through this, to hit the types of engagement and participation in vaccines that will make a meaningful difference for all of us to get back in 2021 to something that feels a little more familiar to us. And so this is really starting to shift from a, a challenge. Originally, it was one of science and areas like mRNA, mm. and then it became one of process and development. How aggressively can we get clinical trials up and running at an extraordinary scale? Mm. And now it's turning into a challenge of the last threshold, which is communications and health communications. Definitely. And how can we engage with people in the information? Now, one thing that's going to be very interesting and challenging in the coming months, right? So right now, if you're a frontline healthcare provider, you have access to mRNA vaccines that were the first approved. And in the coming weeks and months, we will have other vaccines. J&J &J just closed enrollment in their uh, single dose trial. So about two months from now, we'll see some data start to come in. AstraZeneca as well. Later next year, Sanofi, Merck, and others. Mm. Um, and so how will we not only communicate vaccines and their, their understood safety and efficacy, but all of a sudden, the differences from one yeah. to the other? And how will, we, how will consumers and individuals and physicians and healthcare providers manage this type of complexity 
there's still a lot of questions, right? We don't know durability of response and how people respond after getting a second dose. Mm. And so we still have a lot to learn. We're going to have some interesting challenges around communicating and communicating perhaps which vaccine may be right for who. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily something we can expect everybody to just learn. Some of this may be where you obtain your care may end up dictating which vaccine you mm-hmm. end up having access to. But these will be very interesting challenges in the coming year. I'd also encourage folks to keep an eye um, in the UK. Very interesting study going live. First dose with the mRNA vaccine, second dose switch to one of the adeno-based vaccines like mm. AZ or, or others. Teach the immune system with an mRNA as a first dose reinforce it with an adeno or one of the other vaccine. Mm. Interesting way not to just hedge bets could be much more cost-effective. The adeno-based vaccines are much easier to store and to ship, Mm. and they may actually do a good job at reinforcing that first dose. So still a lot to be learned, but a lot of great cause for hope. And so I guess my last message for people would be, you know, if, if you have a sense of hope from these new vaccines, thank a participant from one of the clinical research studies. And if you want to be a part of that hope for the future, volunteer to be a part of the studies that are still ongoing. Definitely. Look, that would be a great, great way to sort of wrap things up there, uh, Craig. Thanks very much for, for your thoughts. Um, look, you're a great com- conversationist. You are definitely a leader in, in the world of, of pharma. Um, I don't know how you manage the, the time with all that you do. Um, but look, just before we, we close off, just tell us, um, so who is the man kind of behind the scenes and in, in behind the world of pharma? What do, what do you get up to outside of, um, well, you know, clearly you're a bit of a character. You showed me your uh, Santa's mask just before we kicked off. Um, what do you do to, to relax uh, and, and to enjoy yourself? Um, honestly, I am a, an extrovert when it comes to working in this industry, and I am a very happy introvert the rest of the time. I love to write. I'm very happy to sit by the fire. I have my dogs and my kids, and I'm very happy to be a nerdy dad um, sitting by the ice hockey rink, watching a dance recital, or sitting by the fireplace with a book. So I know that sounds very boring. Maybe it's because my days are so exciting in this industry. <laughs> but at the end of the day, um, you know, maybe to me that's, and you know what, we were talking earlier about conferences. Even if we were at a conference, I actually really need that time back in my hotel room at the end of the day, just to mentally recharge. And I think that's just an important part of, of my own process. Mm. Well, we talked about earlier, didn't we? You, you have to, t- you know, have that time to switch off. And a lot of people sometimes do get so engrossed in work that, um, and as you say, it's probably because you are doing so much externally with the world of pharma that you you, you deserve some time off uh, when you're at home and, and you need to relax. I appreciate that. But I think we all do in this space, especially this year in terms of just self-care and self-wellness, whatever it is. That works for you. But James, I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to to share with you and to be a part of your conversation. And I'm grateful to your audience for taking a few minutes to to listen and participate. And hopefully we'll have a chance to connect together on social online and hopefully at one point, maybe even enjoy that cup of coffee in the real world. Great stuff. Well, Craig, thanks very much for coming on the show. And if anyone does want to reach out to you, um, I'm guessing LinkedIn is is the, the best place, right?
LinkedIn works, Twitter works. Uh, you'll find me there and uh, hopefully I'll see you there. Great stuff. All right, Craig. Well, thanks so much for having, uh, coming on the show and have a fantastic time over the holidays. Stay well. Thank you.